Hello. For this week on the podcast, we interrupt our normal schedule to say happy Mardi Gras. We're taking a week off this holiday so we can organize our upcoming season six episodes. And to pad out this hole in the schedule, we're bringing you one of our Patreon episodes from the past, free of charge. It's the pilot Redux. You can hear more episodes like this when you become our patron on patreon.com. So if you'd like to support the podcast and start listening to more bonus episodes, go to patreon.com slash northern overexposure podcast. Thank you and enjoy. Thank you for supporting the Northern Overexposure podcast on Patreon. On this episode, we'll be revisiting the pilot episode of Northern Exposure, and we'll also be doing a little reevaluation of the first episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to the Northern Overexposure Patreon episode, where we're going to be revisiting the pilot, something we haven't looked at in over... Mm, Two years? What do you say, Lee? Wow, that's actually a good a good thing to know. Let's see. We posted it in June 16th, 2019. So, coming up on two years there. Wait, uh, yeah, uh, I was about to say, uh, that <laughs> might not necessarily be true because we stockpiled. Oh, since we've watched it. That's true. We, yeah. We like, I think we recorded... I'm pretty sure it was May, right? Oh, wow. Okay, hold up. I'm going to pull out the hard drive. I'm going to see... <laughs> All right, I went to the backups, and it looks like, according to the metadata on the file, when it was created, May 12th, 2019. So, you know, we're approaching two years since we've... This is a, just a long-winded way of saying it's been almost two years since we've watched this episode. I certainly haven't gone back and watched it. And Charles, you know, you were watching the show for the first time, you know, t almost two years ago. Now you're very well acquainted with the show, and we're about to dive back in uh, you know, we, we want to revisit what we saw. Charles, you and I were talking about this like, well, sorry, I should preface by saying I haven't listened to our podcast episode of this, you know, of our, our original pilot either, you know, in quite some time. But um, I want to think that like, I, I don't really have too much new things to say. I have a couple things. But um, this might also be, in my opinion, this would that would have been like our worst episode of the podcast, even though I think it's still pretty good. What what, what do you think? Yeah. No, 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 no. I agree with you. I think that might be the worst one we've done. I really wish we could go back in time and uh, read, like, like re-upload it, but then it wouldn't make sense because once they got to the second episode, they'd be like, wait, why, why the drop in quality? Like, <laughs> so, well, the second episode it, is like, I want to say drastically, it's a little... Like, I think we kind of figured out of the formula of how we do it. And we got better and better. Right. By, I always say the fourth episode was when I felt really good, you know, after recording. But, no, nah, I mean, I, obviously the pilot has the most listens because uh, if you're interested in a Northern Exposure podcast, you typically will start from the beginning, though people might select their favorite episodes. Right. Uh, do you want to share some trivia about the uh, first times that we were recording? Um. Well... I'll say, well, so we recorded at your apartment, right? In Baton Rouge. Yeah, we recorded at my apartment complex, and the mic stands that we were using <laughs> were not mic stands. We didn't actually have proper I equipment. About so, this, yeah. What, I think what we did was like, I think it was like a laundry rack or something. We had two different 
Polish objects, like uh, lengthy objects that we would rubber band multiple times <laughs> our mics. So that would serve as the mic stand. For some reason, I thought the rubber bands would be like a shock absorber. And it's really just tied tying the mic to a stand for for us. And then, no, the, the best part was the paper towel roll, which uh, didn't oh, really yeah. work. It like sort of works, but it was... So basically, it was like a paper towel roll, vertical on a table, and the central hole in the paper towel roll holds your microphone. Is that right? Is that how we do it? (laughs) (laughs) But obviously, anytime you touch the table, it shakes the paper towel roll. It's not completely absorbing the the shock. I guess it's better than something else, but... Um, no, I mean, we're professionals now, you know, we, we definitely have a really good, <laughs> I'd like to think we do, we do a, we a were, pretty good uh, setup. We were also recording in different locations for every episode in season one, I want to say. Uh, yeah, I think for, well, you know, a couple, I think we did probably record most in your apartment. It's a short season, but we did go like somewhere new for the second episode, uh, the fourth episode, I remember we recorded that in our friend's like studio, not really studio, but just, you know, space. Yeah, we went all we around. We recorded for one sure. in your landlord's apartment. I remember that <laughs> one. Yeah, when I was like watching her her side of the house. Sorry, I also want to say, yeah, we've we've gotten better with our equipment. We don't really have a studio. Obviously, we're telecommunicating right now, but um, I've definitely learned a lot more and I think I'm still trying to learn more about EQing and, you know, preparing, like finishing uh, as we're editing this podcast and putting it out. But uh, yeah, we've come we've come quite a long ways. So we're here to talk about the pilot and really kind of reflect that with the show as we know it now. You know, a lot of things may have changed. Obviously, you know, isn't this popular, Charles, where they might shoot a pilot for a show and it might be months before it gets picked up and they shoot more episodes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You will just shoot the pilot, sometimes with different actors. Like, yeah. off the top of my head, uh, 30 Rock had Rachel Dratch in the role of Jenna. And then NBC saw the footage and they were like, hey, we like this show, but we don't want this actress in the role. Oh, wow. Uh, it was such a, yeah, it sucked for her. But then they had the recast and they got Jane Krakowski instead. So, yeah, uh, they could be. Even up to like, I've heard years sometimes, like pilots taking that long for it to see the light of day. I don't know when the pilot was shot. Sometimes on these um, bonus features, you know, they'll show deleted scenes and you can see the slate and it has like the date on it. I don't think there's anything on the DVDs that will clue us in here, but I do feel like there are some changes Particularly with like maybe just the like Hollings character, his costume and makeup. We'll we'll get into that, and I think we touched on that before. But um, yeah, there's some differences that seem a little out of place now. If you're going from like season four, which is when we're recording this uh, bonus episode, we're like in the middle of season four, comparing that to this pilot. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the pilot. But before we get into it, do you actually know why? pilot episodes are called pilot Ooh, no i don't this sounds like some good trivia go ahead yeah so it turns out that the term pilot doesn't necessarily mean like the person sitting in the cockpit maneuvering the plane it could also mean serving as a prototype so in a sense you could say that the quote-unquote 
pilot episode means guiding the TV show. So it's going to set the theme of what the rest of the season and the show is going to be about. Definitely makes sense. Um, It's a shame that this one's called pilot because there's such great titles in the first season. But I think it's a really great pilot. It's a really good episode in comparison to just like all the episodes that we've been watching. I don't know if I would rank it in like the best pilots of TV. Certainly not the best episode of Northern Exposure. But uh, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised to revisit season one, you know? Yeah, I think it fulfills the obligations that a pilot does. And I think there's one particular moment where I was like, oh, wow, like this is like, this is great for a pilot, but Northern Exposure doesn't do this very often. Uh, I'm referring to the scene in which presumably everyone has seen the pilot if you're listening (laughs) to this Patreon uh, exclusive episode, so I'm just going to spoil it. But it happens in the final moments in Joel's office whenever he is trying to help the patient and his wife, trying to kind of serve as like a counselor to their marriage. Mm -hmm. And he's laying down the law and he goes through this ultimatum of being like, all right, well, if you guys aren't going to divorce or do a separation, then you guys need to talk it out. And it's an abrupt shift. And you totally need that tonal shift to establish character motivation. And you don't see it being laid down so heavy handed in the rest of Northern Exposure. But you would commonly do this in pilots where there would be a huge tonal shift. You're saying like a shift in Joel's character? Like a shift in the show itself. The tone like maybe? Before... Or- yeah, oh, like what? beforehand, we weren't really going that uh, that serious, I guess. Mm. Like it was just about Joel trying to get out of Sicily, and he was just simply helping this man with a well. At this point, it was a knife wound, but earlier it had been a gunshot wound. And you don't expect them to actually contribute to anything, but then when the wife shows up, he suddenly decides to go into doctor mode, and that has not happened whatsoever in the entire episode. Yeah, you make a good point. He's kind of like. Uh, been trying to avoid his duties. I mean, of course, once he sees the blood of, uh, I think the character's name is Walter. They call him number six a couple times. Mm-hmm. Once Joel sees the blood, he does spring into action as a doctor, but you know, it's more of like a secondhand afterthought. Um, he's pulling the slug out of the guy's leg, calls it like the Saturday night special. He's like, yeah, run of the mill. Like this is, I can just like kind of wash my hands of this afterwards. But he does become very personal when uh, when it comes down to sort of this threatening situation. And um, look, we're probably going to say a lot of the stuff we've already said in our pilot. <laughs> this is this is uh, we're trying to bring whatever things new we can, but reevaluate what we've already said and do a better job. So we'll probably touch on a lot of the same stuff. I was just going to say, I think my biggest takeaway from the pilot and from just the show in general. What I love about um, Joel Fleischman and Northern Exposure is the doctor-patient relationship. And that's kind of like what we see when Joel, you know, assumes the role of like marriage counselor and how like a doctor talks to your patients. It's not really like what he's doing to cure you um, physically or what he's prescribing to you. He's just kind of like, you know, wants to talk it out with you. Yeah. Like how can he personally fix this town? And uh, yeah, it's an aspect that we lost now that I'm thinking about it throughout the future seasons because I think it focuses less on Joel being like the savior of Sicily and more about him being inverse. Like now he needs to be saved. Like the town needs Mm. to imbue some of their essence into Joel. And now he's just a fish out of water. Sure. I think we've lost certain aspects, but I think uh, certain characteristics of it remain like 
probably one of my favorite episodes, Wake Up Call in the third season, is a lot about doctor-patient relationships. And, you know, there's a lot of sort of um, clever uses of Joel as a doctor that aren't necessarily like medicine. Uh, there's another one, I think it's Oi Wilderness, when Joel can somehow fix the engine of the plane because it, you know, is like the engine of this plane is not unlike uh, the human heart. You know, it's got valves and pumps. So there are still a lot of clever uses they can pull from the this profession of the doctor that's not just medicine or um, what you would typically think of as a doctor. There's a lot of, uh, I don't know, interesting human qualities and just other extrapolations they can pull. So I think we'll still be surprised by that. Though you are right, you know, the show is definitely shifted from Joel as a protagonist to more of an ensemble piece. This episode, by the way, doesn't really have any subplots or like what I'm trying to say is like it pretty much follows Joel's plotline, you know, storyline, well, right? Does it does it deviate? It's got, it's got that oh, one ha- subplot Halling with Maurice. Halling and Maurice. Right. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really like the touches of like the Maurice and Halling plotline, especially the ending is amazing, uh, which is kind of the ending of the episode more or less. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's bring it back to the beginning, the opening of the episode. Uh, I've chugged this cup of water, so I'm definitely going to take another pee break for this. uh, (laughs) Just to be true to the original (laughs) pilot, I have to step away from the mic and leave you uh, talking about the <laughs> the episode. I can't remember at what point that happened, but let's see if let's see if we can time it right. Um anyway, opening of the episode, you know, in an airplane. Were we talking about a pilot recently where it like starts in an airplane? Oh, Ted Lasso has sort of like an airplane scene because we were comparing the two. It oh, doesn't yeah. like start with the airplane, but they have like an airplane scene early in the beginning. Um but this one's nice. Uh I think we've already touched on it before, but I really still do think that the ending of this scene is very effective when it cuts to like the wide shot because it could have just cut out um, with Joel. The man says, you know, Joel's like, you know, uh, I'm going to Alaska. I'm a doctor. The state of Alaska paid for my scholarship. I've got to go work there as a doctor. You know, I'm a little nervous about it, but it's probably going to be great. You know, Anchorage is a big city. And then his uh, plane buddy is just like, well, good luck. And then his plane buddy like turns the light out. It could have just ended like with something like that, but it does linger on this wide shot, which um, obviously I I still love. Yeah, yeah. I was just about to say that too. I even wrote that in my notes. I was like, the lighting is really nice. It's a great timing where like he turns off his light so that only Joel's side is illuminated, indicating his loneliness. Yeah, it's kind of like a spotlight effect, uh, but really cool. And not only the spotlight, but the wide shot as well, you know, pulls us as you said, kind of makes it feel a little more alone. Uh, The next thing I wanted to touch on was, I may have mentioned this in our pilot, but um, when he goes to Peter Gilliam's office, uh, by the way, we talked about Peter Gilliam, that the actor who plays Peter Gilliam returns in Survival of the Species. He's the, uh, like the big bad wolf in Maggie's uh, Red Riding Hood dream sequence. Yeah, I, I, I totally forgot about that, but you can see him in that role. Right there. I wonder <laughs> if that was intentional or not, or if the actor was just looking for some work. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows like how maybe it's a thing with the casting director working with a certain casting agency. 
I don't know how, like, I guess since he's under all that makeup, it's, you know, they can bring him back without him looking like, oh, that's the guy from the pilot. Right. I like the uh, beginning scene with that, with them in the office. It's very symmetrical. Symmetrical, how do you mean? Like, what's the, oh, is it like when he Joel is sitting in the, in the waiting room? Right or? before that. Right before he goes to the waiting room uh, and he sits in his office, it's where he's waiting for him in the hallway. Yeah. In the hallway, in the center of the shot, there is the pillar, the white pillar, separating both Joel and Peter. Then you have the window, this large uh, half-moon window that's perfectly balanced with the white pillar. There's two lamps up above, the brown ones, left and right, perfectly spaced. And then below them... In front of the shot, in the foreground, there is two gray lamps also perfectly balanced with them. And then in the middle of the entire shot, there is the stair railings. So it is a very clean-cut scene. I like it. Uh, I don't know why I never caught that in the first time. Yeah, and that scene, like when he's sitting there in that hallway, waiting room, lobby, it starts with a close-up on Joel, and he's got like his golf clubs to his side. And the background seems very natural. Like, it almost looks like he's sitting in front of some trees. Right. And I've seen, you know, we've seen this episode before. I was like, wait, is he already at the bus stop? What is this? But it does, you know, punch out into that wider shot, which is very symmetrical. But no, I was wanting to say, uh, maybe I mentioned this already, but if you look in the deleted scenes for this episode, uh, when you're in Peter Gilliam's office, you can see, well, in the episode, you can kind of see like a little framed photo I was like, oh, maybe that's like his wife or something, but it's kind of cropped out. It's like hard, It's like on the edge of his desk. You can't really see it inside of the frame. But if you go into the deleted scenes, you get like the frame is less cropped. You see more of the desk. And it's like, it kind of looks like an older lady in a bikini. I think, I don't know if they thought that was just like too funny or distracting, but they definitely cropped it out in the, in the broadcast. <laughs> it's his grandma. All right, Charles. Um, I am going to go to the bathroom, but um, I won't make you uh, cover for me. I'll, I'll be back. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm back. Um, so the next scene is Joel on a bus to Sicily. Something I noticed for the first time this time is uh, the bus, the exterior, when you see the bus on the outside, it does say Sicily, like on the front, like that's where they're headed which I think is a pretty cool touch because obviously Sicily is a fictional place. So they must have made that uh, sign for the bus. Yeah, nice little attention to detail right there. Yeah, I forgot that he took this bus to get into town because I remember the scene that comes after this, which is where he gets picked up by Ed. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's... Uh I wonder if they even really needed this scene, to be honest, because it's it doesn't really show much. It just shows Joel being frustrated with his uh, guest. Like, I, I wonder <laughs> if it could have just cut right to the bus stop where he's yeah. just sitting there we would have understood as an audience member that like he got dropped off there. Maybe you need to know that it's like a long bus ride to show that it's uh, really out in the middle of nowhere. Th this is a very um, sort of jarring scene to watch. It's unlike, uh, I think we touched on this before. It's unlike what you would expect to see in a Northern Exposure episode. You don't really get these musical montages with these sort of like sight gags. You know, Joel is like bumping his head on the chair in front of him. Or like this old man falls asleep on Joel during this long bus ride. But yeah, it does feel a little out of place for what we know of the show. Right. I do love the next shot that comes right afterwards. Though. It's Joel sitting at the bus stop. He's sitting on his luggage. His golf clubs are to the right of him. And the camera is behind the trees. So the leaves of the tree are in the foreground, actually. So it feels like you're peeking at Joel. 
in that scene. I really enjoy it. Yeah, definitely like your what like sort of a subjective shot. I'm I don't I'd have to go look at the shot real fast. Let me take a look at it. But just from what you're describing, kind of feels like maybe, you know, he's trapped underneath this sort of veil of leaves. So it really does feel like maybe you're in the middle of the forest from your description. Yeah, I see it now. Yeah, it does feel like Bigfoot or something's watching him. <laughs> it is a cool shot. I love it. And what's up with this bus stop? It doesn't even have a, a chair, you know? Can it be called a bus stop if it doesn't have a like a place to sit, I guess? Uh, no, you, you totally can because uh, yeah, I've seen it in my own city where there's like no right. bu- there's no benches or chairs. It's just this bus stop. Better have a suitcase to sit on. Um, <laughs> Ed, we are introduced to Ed, which I remember you remarking is, you know, this is one of your favorite characters from early on. Yeah, uh, I forgot that he was that talkative because uh, oftentimes recently, Ed is a man of little dialogue but in this one, he's quoting saying elsewhere in the truck. He's talking about R&B. It's a good way to show his character. But I feel like after the pilot, they had a better idea of how to write him to be a movie buff rather than the person that just spouts off popular culture. Yeah, I want to say actually, um, specifically his like musical tastes, that sort of flavor maybe gets painted on to Shelley later on throughout the series. Because... Um, Ed is set up to be like this young kid who listens to rap music. Uh, he mentions Belle Biv DeVoe later. He talks about rap in this scene. You know, things like that I think I would normally attribute to Shelly. Like she's the one who's into the hair metal, all the like popular music. She would be the one to, ha- you know, have the knowledge on that subject. But by the way, Shelly really doesn't have much to do in this episode. She's always seen from afar. And also I don't think she even works at the brick from this, just watching at this pilot. I think maybe canon-wise, like, she's working at the brick, but I don't think you could tell that from watching this pilot. No, you can't. It just looks like she's uh, another guest right there. And, uh, yeah, I don't I don't want to have to harp on this, but, like, of course it's, like, bad writing that, like, she was just, she was just, like, an object yeah. for two <laughs> older men to fight over. <laughs> but speaking of one of the older men, we actually get to see him for the first time. It's kind of a nice shot because you see the truck that Joel now has to commandeer because Ed just leaves him out in the forest. I actually yeah. totally forgot about that. <laughs> he he takes over at the wheel and he drives and then he has to pause and then the camera pauses with him and then the camera turns back and it shows the mailbox, Minifield, HCO3. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And then Joel drives in. Yeah, Joel is like, uh, he. I love how scared he looks behind the wheel. Because it's like kind of a lower angle. The dashboard is almost like covering a lot of Joel. And he's like almost, looks like he's hiding <laughs> behind the wheel, you know? Yeah, he's like 11 to 1 with his hands, man. <laughs> and of course, we get the wonderful stunt actor uh, rappelling down from Maurice's roof. Cut over to Joel. And he says, Mr. Minifield. And it cuts back and it's Maurice now. It's not the uh, stunt actor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so here's a question I had. Does Maurice's house on the inside feel different? Like, is this the same house? It feels different, but maybe it's, I don't know why they wouldn't keep the same house from the pilot because they presumably shot this all like in and around Roslyn. Maybe the only thing I could think is like, maybe they made a set for um, Maurice's house and maybe this uh, house that they're shooting in now is a, is a real house and not a set. Mm, that's a good guess. I remember from my recollection, is that Maurice's house was filled with more mahogany. The most recent shot that I can remember 
is where him and Ruth Ann are negotiating her store. Yeah, that's like in a study for sure, yeah. Yeah, and this one looks like it's a living room, but they don't really show this a lot in the future episodes, particularly the couch that they're sitting on. Yeah. I, I don't think we ever see that again. I want to say, like, there's a shot where Joel's looking around the, like, tall-ceilinged room, and he sees, like, a car, like, hanging on the ceiling, like that old, like, carriage or something. I want to say I've seen that again, but... um. The, the things I think about when I think about Maurice's house is uh, his staircase, like an upper landing, which I guess we see some of that in this episode, though I'm not sure if it's the same, but also like his front door. I feel like we see like him at his front door a couple times, like inviting people in or uh, saying goodbye to people as they leave. Right, right. I noticed that there is a, uh, there is a skull a human skull Whoa. sitting on the desk behind Maurice <laughs> in his house. It's like a skull of Yorick type of thing. Okay. What's the, you have the time code? Yeah, it's uh 1047. Oh, wow. That is creepy. It's really small. Is that an accordion? He's got like an accordion right there too. Yeah. So he's got an accordion <laughs> right there. And then he's got that skull. I don't know why. It's even more creepy because there's like a collection of knives in the background too. <laughs> if you look it's over like to the, the right side It's like the most dangerous game. Maurice would totally be like... <laughs> I was going to comment also on his costume here because it seems uh, a little atypical. It's like pretty flashy green. He also seems like really clean for some reason, like smooth baby skin. But uh, no, later in the episode, he does put on his characteristic jacket and uh, NASA baseball cap. Right. Well, the strange thing about it is that before when he's uh, rappelling down the roof, he's wearing what he would ordinarily wear, like a flannel shirt and jeans. And then he changes in this scene. Yeah, I'm guessing he's changing because like he was doing like yard work and they're about to go into town or something. That's my uh, that's my guess. Right. You want to talk about the town? Yeah. So we drive in with Maurice's, you know, gold Cadillac and uh, we cross some very familiar, you know, main street of I guess you would call this. Roslyn, Washington, which uh, Maurice sets up by, you know, you know, describing the history. Uh, Sicily and Rosalind founded this town together. They were, you know, he's kind of um, unclear about it, but, you know, they were lesbians. And uh, what is it like the hippie who painted the Roslyn Cafe sign forgot to put the apostrophe or something? Yeah, he had to go over and paint it himself right there. That brings us to the next scene where we can see Joel's office for the first time. And I forgot that it was a wreck at the very first time. It oh, is really? just, yeah, it's just in shambles. Um, I, I guess that what they did initially is that this isn't the actual office, right? Like this is just a random building they walked into. And then when they get to the actual scenes with the office in later episodes, that's the quote unquote real building, right? Well, I think that the lobby, like the waiting room, is a real building because you can see that exterior if you were to go to Rosalind, Washington. However, like the doctor's office and his own like personal office and the like, um, what's the word for like the room? Uh, the waiting room? No, like the, where you like actually see the doctor, medical examiner. I don't know. The two rooms that are inside of um, his office past the waiting room. I think those are mm-hmm. sets. Oh, okay. Or, you know, It's like probably like half set, half real. So um, I do think that when they first enter and it's like there's like boards on the door and boards on the window, I think this is a real location. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. This is also the scene where we first meet Marilyn, who is looking for a job. So she's just like chilling in this abandoned building. (laughs) 
that like no one's been inside <laughs> of? Because Ed hasn't been there to fix it up. Marilyn's just inside this. Did they unlock the door? I guess I guess uh, we learn later that all the locks in Sicily use the same key, right? That's in a future episode. Yeah, I think so. Ed says, yeah, like everyone has the same lock. Like I have the same key. It's in my house, so. Right. So Joel tries to go find a telephone. He runs out of his office and he goes to the brick for the very first time. And that is where he has his conversation with Elaine, who I also forgot about. <laughs> forgot that he was actually engaged to someone. Dang, Charles, man, it's, I guess it's been some time. It's because they never uh, talk about it again. <laughs> they don't ever back bring back for, up Elaine. Um, well, she came back in Roots in season three. Uh, remember, she does come back and. Uh, oh, that's true. They end up like re- yeah. re- reigniting some past love, but breaking up sort of. Um, yeah, she kind of gets like shoot out of that episode pretty fast. I remember she doesn't get a lot of closure there, but uh, it's, you know, I guess it's effective to sort of end their relationship and see Joel and Maggie, like how they're growing closer together at that point. But no, yeah, so Joel is in the brick. We briefly saw Halling. Um, let's let's touch on this real fast. He's definitely, he wears a lot of vests in the pilot, uh, very Western wear. And there's something going on with, Halling and then later Joel. Uh, it's like a makeup thing where like Halling has like five o'clock shadow. I'll also point out like his hair is a little blonder, I think, in this episode. But it also seems mm-hmm. like he has like more of like a gruff five o'clock shadow thing going on. And then later the scene when Joel is like having beers with Maggie, he also has like the same kind of odd five o'clock shadow makeup. I want to say it kind of looks like makeup, but it doesn't look so great to me. Oh, well, uh, I guess they just didn't catch that. Like, I guess, I don't know if that's actually makeup. Like, it looks like he just naturally grew it out. Are you talking about Holling or Joel? Joel. Okay, for like that, for that scene. It could be more natural. Maybe it's just hard for me to tell. Um, But yeah, for Holling, at least, he definitely looks more tanned, right? Yeah, he looks more younger in this one for some reason. Like, I'm looking at him right now, and I think he could pass for like a 50-something-year-old, like (laughs) young 50s. But then they lean into the, you know, he's got longevity in his genes later in the series. He's like 63 or something. Right, right. I love the freak out that Joel has on the phone. The whole dynamic of like, he's just like screaming into this phone. And then it cuts to like everyone in the bar, like the pool players looking at him. Kind of like, whoa, what's going on? There's so much good like extras throughout the entire episode. Like the pool players, the lady at the bar when Joel walks in. Uh, all of his patients, they just look so interesting. Yeah, they definitely knocked it out of the park with that one. It's also just a great scene to set up conflict because then you can easily paint, you know, it's a good Joel versus the town type of situation right here. And this is also where we get the reintroduction of Ed. He walks back into the brick and we get some backstory with Halling and Maurice. Yeah, Ed and Halling are sort of talking about some sort of bad blood that's going on between Halling and Maurice. And Joel just happens to be sitting there at the bar, drinking a seltzer, I believe. Um, he need, uh, Yeah, he asked for an aspirin. But um, yeah, Joel will later bring this up to Halling, just like, you know, can I ask you a personal question? Why does Maurice want to blow your brains out? That, that kind of stuff. And uh, it's interesting because Joel sort of involves himself. He begins to involve himself with the town in this way because he's like curious about Halling. But uh, Joel doesn't really see the ending of that sort of a conflict in this episode. He's more, I guess, focused with his patience. Right, right. The, that was a really great observation, Lee. I think that this is the very first time in which Joel is showing 
in which Joel is indicating some sort of interest in the townsfolk themselves rather than him. So he stays perched next to the phone waiting for his call from Elaine, and that's where we get the introduction of Maggie, who he mistakens for a prostitute. Yeah. Uh, It's kind of confusing. I think I mentioned this before. Like, I didn't fully understand it. It may, it may like fly past you, but what is happening is uh, Maggie is trying to introduce herself. Joel is not at all paying attention. He's really concerned about getting Elaine back on the phone. And he just, I guess, doesn't want to be disturbed. And Maggie says something like, uh, well, what does she say? She says something like, you know, if, uh, do you remember, do you know the line? Uh, if you'd rather spend the night here than at my place, don't let me get in your way. Ah, got it. Yeah. And when she says my place, she means like the apartment that she has readied for him. Uh, But I guess Joel picks that up as, you know, she's a prostitute. She has another line in this episode, which is like kind of like poor. It's just not clear wording uh, when she's talking about her boyfriend that died. um, The one that wrote Mountain of My Misgiving. Uh, She says he left. You know, that's the when, when she first mentions like he's not here anymore. He left. Um, she could have just said he's dead, which she does say later in that scene, but very, very, well, I guess she's just uncomfortable with, I mean, that's her like, what, fifth one at that point. <laughs> yeah. Well, wouldn't, I don't know. Yeah. She, I guess, sure. She could be uncomfortable, but I guess she's had a lot of boyfriends die. So, uh, speaking of <laughs> Rick is in this episode and he's alive. Oh God. I, yeah. I Another character we just haven't seen. Yeah, since season two, because, I mean, he's dead. But, yeah, it's just a lot of characters I just forgot about. (laughs) Well, anyway, we were talking about, it's this whole thing where Maggie's like, I'm not a hooker, you jerk. I'm your landlord. That's a pretty cool moment. And uh, I believe the next scene is, like, they go back to Joel, like, she's bringing him to his cabin for the first time. Right. And once again, you see Joel's, you know, very sexist comments in which he assumes that she is a flight attendant and <laughs> yeah. not a pilot. So he's uh, two for two right now. Well, he says stewardess first, right? And then he corrects himself, flight attendant. But I mean, he was just way off to begin with. I also love in this scene, the line um, that Joel gives, he says, you know, this place is really charming in a, you know, charming sort of way. I don't know. I just really always <laughs> love that delivery. Yeah, it kind of seems like a, uh, it's like when you don't have anything else to compliment. Yeah. So you say like, that person's nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also love the mousetrap scene when Joel's like lying awake at night in bed, clutching his golf club. You can hear like a mouse scurrying around. Finally, you hear the mouse trap activate, like snap. And Joel like lets out a sigh of relief. Can finally go to bed. Uh, but the next morning, he's when he's like running the mouse to the trash can. I think I said this in our pilot, like that sort of uh, comedy yucks uh, acting that you know Joel Fleischman is doing in this scene is a little cheesy, and it, it doesn't really fit too well for Rob Morrow. Um, just at least what they're trying to do in this shot. Uh, it fe- feels a little odd, but but yeah. That rat's also super fake, like, looking back at this scene. Like, it is obviously, it looks like laundry lint with, like. I mean, we are uh, watching on, like, standard def, but let me let me look at this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Let me see. Yeah, it does look pretty fake. It's pretty big. It is a big rat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think they can actually grow that size. I've heard, I've heard horror stories. <laughs> oh, oh, for sure. I'm, I'm sure of that. Uh so we get also the great outdoors, you know, as soon as Joel trashes the rat, he realizes he's outside 
in the sunlight for the first time. And he's just in the middle of nowhere. He, you know, this begins his sort of like jog, his run sprint into town. And uh, we get the familiar sort of Northern exposure theme, but I didn't even notice this before. It has like, um, it has some vocals. And if you got the subtitles on, it actually says like, Oh, like someone says, Oh, there's like, there's some, <laughs> there's an O and there's some like, mm, like, so there's some vocals on top of this, uh, Northern exposure theme. They, uh, they should bring that back because <laughs> yeah. I'm a huge sucker of whenever they bring back the theme of the television show in pivotal moments. It's, uh, the, you know, you only do it at like finales or something like that, but yeah. it's a lot more powerful. They, they never do that. Yeah. For Northern, they never do that for Northern exposure. Yeah, that's true. That's another way the pilot's different is that they use the, the theme a lot. But that's only that's never used in the show afterwards, except for, of course, the opening titles. So that brings us to Ruth Ann's store, but we don't know that she's Ruth Ann yet. She is not named. Oh wow! Well, she yeah. doesn't introduce herself right here. <laughs> uh, I do remember us talking about the bagel scene, how she didn't <laughs> yeah. know what a bagel was, which I still find unbelievable. I don't think that's right. She's a how old is Ruth Ann? Like in her seventies or something? <laughs> like yeah, I don't know. Yeah. She's she must know what a bagel is, right? And she's not even. Like she comes from Portland, I think. So presumably a bigger city. I mean, it's a bigger city than Sicily. Right. Which brings us to the next scene with Joel entering into his office, which Ed fixed up really quickly. I, I didn't notice this yeah. the first time, but like it, the the windows are completely changed out. Like it's now this <laughs> large, <laughs> it, it's now these large uh, rectangular windows. I, it wasn't even there in the first place. Like he must've changed out the entire thing. <laughs> yeah. And then like, we don't see it yet, but when Joel does go to his like desk in his office, it's got like a nice vase of flowers. Uh, it's got that little like uh, uh, I figure it's a theodolite, like the little the little like telescope thing that's on his desk. Mm -hmm. It's a it's it's they fixed it up. I, oh yeah, I actually really like those flowers in that vase you were talking about. So I was looking at it, and I can definitely tell that the yellow ones are sunflowers, but the purple ones, I I kept looking at them. I want to say they're lavender. Uh, right there. And I think it's actually pretty neat because sunflowers generally represent optimism and brilliance and lavenders represent refinement and grace, but also faithfulness. So what these flowers <laughs> can actually represent to Joel in this scene is that he is wanting to emerge out of the dirt. He wants to be more optimistic toward his life in Sicily. And he also still wants to remain a doctor. So in that pivotal scene that I was talking about where he goes into quote unquote doctor mode, that's where the lavender comes into play. He's a lot more faithful to his profession and the Hippocratic Oath. So I actually think those two flowers are aptly placed. Yeah, I would also say the lavender could be like a, um, a message from Maurice, you know, like the scene when they're in the canoe and Maurice is like, you better not run on me. Like you made a promise when you shook my hand. Oh. So it's like, you better be faithful to this profession here. Like don't leave. So it could work that way as well. Nice. Um, okay. So we were talking about, he goes in, he sees like some patients for the first time. It's the whole scene where like, he's like, no, I'm not a, I'm not going to be your doctor. I'm not even supposed to stay here. Hold on. Is this when he like, he got kind of steps outside for a moment uh, and then he does walk right back in and start counting them, giving them numbers. Yeah, he starts triaging them. <laughs> well, I guess it's not really triage because he's not ordering them by importance. He's ordering them by a sight line, like whoever <laughs> yeah. he saw first. But yeah, he goes and gives numbers and uh, skips all the way to six, which is the one with the beaver. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, six is the one who got shot, right? Oh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. Six is the one that got shot. 
So I guess it's so number he does two jump in. Yeah, man. yeah. Six does like jump in line, I guess. But he does start with one. It's the guy who says, uh, "I'm feeling achy and I'm hot." And Joel says, "Okay, so uh, for how long?" And the man says, "About three years." So you get the idea that they just haven't had a doctor here for way too long. And uh, number two is the lady with the beaver, who is actually Ann Gordon. That's the um, animal handler for the show for like, I think the entire run of the show. Wait, what Which makes sense? I guess if you got someone holding like a beaver, they're the animal handler. That makes so much sense. I didn't know that. One day we got to get her on the pod and ask her about, um, doggo watch <laughs> all the, all the dogs like running around town and handling, uh, the oh, beaver. I, I actually, did. I go ahead. I actually, I, I love beavers. They're my favorite animals. <laughs> Wait, really? Even more than dogs? Yeah, they're so cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're the only animal can, that can have large, drastic ecological uh, impact. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, they're usually very positive animals in that regard. Nice. Did you? Were you a fan of Angry Beavers, the cartoon? Uh, kind of. I I, uh, I didn't really get their anger because I was like <laughs> watching it when I was like six. I was like, what's there to be angry about? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I also wanted to say I forgot this. Uh, the dog on Joel's like sprint into town. It's pretty funny. Maybe we said this in our pilot before, but Joel runs past this dog and the dog, you know, normally if I would like to like run in front of a dog, I would expect it to like start chasing after me. The dog just like sits there for a good like three to five seconds. And then it's like, all right, yeah, this seems fun. And like chases after Joel. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty cool that the dog doesn't move at first. You know, it's like watches, it kind of watches him first and then decides to chase after him. Like it's a fun game. (laughs) Okay, so uh, yeah, we we mentioned so six does sort of skip the line because Joel notices the drops of blood. We touched on this a little bit earlier in the episode. You know, he gets the bullet out. It's sort of this uh, marriage problem that really like the solution would be they need to talk to each other. And and uh, oh, I forgot. Did you point out the um? So Joel's like basically saying, you know, the way I see it when he when he has the husband and wife sitting together, the way I see it. You can divorce, uh, separation, or you can start talking to each other. So how many hands do I have for divorce? And he looks around, and then Marilyn raises her hand. <laughs> That's like one of the best jokes, I think, in the episode. Uh, no no hands for separation. And then so he's like, all right, so you guys need to just start talking. Right. We also need to talk about the scene where Maurice is confronting Joel. Uh, he's got a dog on the boat. He's got this golden retriever, great hunting dog, retrieving yeah. dog. and. I don't think we ever see that dog again. Yeah, I don't think we see that dog again, though I don't think we see Maurice hunt again. Could be wrong. Maybe he's like fishing later. I could be way wrong. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, we definitely don't see this dog. And I- I'm guessing like if it uh, it must just live in a kennel or something somewhere. I'm sure he just sets it free in his backyard. He owns <laughs> like, what, what What did he say? Like 15,000 yeah. acres of land? <laughs> That's true, yeah. There's a great, you know, there's an awesome episode called A Hunting We Will Go where Joel does go hunting. But in this episode, Maurice says, uh, you know, he asks Joel, do you do much hunting? And Joel replies, just on the Lower East Side for bargains. <laughs> it's just like a terrible, <laughs> terrible dad joke, but uh, but I loved it. Let's see, I'm kind of just rolling along here. Joel and Maggie get drunk. Um, I'm actually not sure why this is happening. So is Joel waiting to hear back from Elaine? Like, why are they at the brick and they're at the brick together? 
kind of in the same booth. We just kind of open with them at the booth, right? Right. We don't really have any uh, lead up to this scene. It just opens with them in the bar. There's no one else in the bar, too. It's just these two characters with a lot of beer bottles. Yeah. And this is where we establish the love interest between them. Yeah, the uh, the lips as red as like you have the most red the reddest lips I've ever seen, and I think uh, they call that back in uh, Jules and Joel, right? That episode, one of them, either Jules or Joel, says it. Uh, he said, "I think it's Jules who says, has anyone ever told you you have the reddest lips I've ever seen, or something?'" And of course, Maggie. Oh, of course, someone has told Maggie that, and it was Joel. You know, but it's funny that Jules is saying it. Right, nice callback right there. Of course, Joel gets hammered and then smash cut to him waking up in Maggie's place. Maggie's old house before before it burns oh, yeah. down. Before it burns down right there. I love this scene because uh, I think I just love breakfast and porches. You know, they're just hanging out on the porch with Rick, eating some toast. And uh, yeah, we, we get this uh, confusion. Did Joel get drunk and sleep with Maggie? Uh, no. It's uh, Joel says... The bed that I slept in is the same bed that Maggie slept in. And Rick says, no, we sleep in the other room. I thought that just, I thought that was a pretty cool scene. <laughs> right. And then he has like that. Oh, oh, little <laughs> sigh right there. Yeah. There is flowers in that scene, but I, I because we're watching this and not the greatest quality, I, and they're not zoomed in at all. I really cannot tell. Enhance. You got to like CSI oh, enhance yeah. it. <laughs> enhance it right there. <laughs> all right. Let's see. What do I have the rest of my notes? We've kind of talked about the scene with Walter, you know, number six and uh, Walter's wife. I wonder if I can't remember if we hear her name in the episode, though. um, Marilyn does refer to her as number six's wife. Oh, the phone starts ringing. And it's interesting, you know, because we're talking about Ed must have fixed up this whole place really quickly. I guess also plugged in the phone, but he put the phone in the drawer is that a common thing though? Like, did people used to have their phones in their drawers, or uh, I want to say you put it on your desk? But now that I yeah, say it I aloud, say, I don't know. <laughs> the the desk would be the most proper place. Like, why would you? You have to take it out when you want to use the phone. I don't understand why you're putting it in the uh, in the drawer in the drawer right there. So it's hidden in the drawer for some reason. Um, oh, by the way, Elaine's voice because that's who's calling him. Uh, she's calling him to talk about the contract dispute or what have you. Elaine's voice is not uh, Jessica Lundy. At least I don't think it is. That's the uh, actress who plays Elaine in The Russian Flu and in Roots. And I think this happens again. Like uh, there's another episode. I want to say maybe it's even um, Dream Schemes and Putting Greens or there's another episode where Joel gets a call from Elaine and it's not Jessica Lundy's voice. Yeah, I don't know. Just thought something I should point out. It's, you know, they kind of jump around between the actresses. Or Elaine, I don't know. I, I would kind of wish Elaine were a bit of a bigger character before, um, before you know, they break it off. But I am glad that she's brought back in uh, season three for that one episode. Right. I do like that phone call for one particular line that actually made me laugh. <laughs> uh, I forgot about it. It's where he's, uh, he's talking about the terms of the contract and he goes, <laughs> $10,000 or 18 years in jail and 18 years in jail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's totally screwed. Um, but yeah, you sort of hear Elaine's voice there, like as he's kind of, he kind of has given up. Oh, oh, this is such a great sequence. Joel 
just walks straight out of the office into the parked pickup truck, closes the door, like sits there for maybe a very small beat. And then he just starts freaking out, like flailing his arms and screaming. It's so awesome. And then uh, as soon as that outburst is done, like he looks up across the dashboard and he can see like he's parked right in front of this uh, park with like people sitting on the bench and like everyone's looking at him. There's so much, again, there's so much great uh, extras that are just, they're just looking straight at the camera. They're not even acting or anything. I think it's just like the their look, like their appearance is, um, they're really well cast, I want to say. And uh, yeah, they don't even have to really do anything. It just really sells uh, the effect, that that comedy, that joke. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess Joel's just out of his element from the uh, New York City subway because you can just break down in there and no one <laughs> gives you a second look. <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. <laughs> Everyone's very perceptive. Uh, no, so go ahead. And this brings us to the pivotal ending credit shot where Joel leaves with Marilyn resigned to his fate and he goes back to his office and you see them walking and it's Marilyn's back and Joel's back. Yeah, I mean, well, that used to be the credits uh, after it would go to black and say Joshua Brand, John Falsey, it would cut to this shot, still frame of that shot. I think it was in, I know it was in season one, maybe in season two as well. I actually can't remember. But at some point they stopped using that and they use a pretty poorly lit shot of the moose in front of the Roslyn Cafe. It's like they must have shot it at sunrise or sunset. It's kind of dark. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the original in credits, we've talked about this. It's such a strange image, like to choose. I think if you were watching the show, it would feel like a. I think someone has even said like they thought it might have been a mistake, like a, the editor accidentally <laughs> put this. Like, why am I seeing this shot? But if you'd watch the pilot, it's it's that pivotal moment when Joel decides to stay in Sicily, maybe because he literally can't do anything else. He's broken down, but uh. It's sort of a defeated walk back towards the um, towards his office, the doctor's office. But also, I don't know, there's some power and, I don't know, just happiness in me at least because I know this is where the show begins, you know? Right, right. And this is where ordinarily the show could have just cut. Like, it could have ended right here and it would have been a pretty decent resolution right there. But it actually continues for one more final scene to handle the subplot of Maurice and Holly. And this is the... Arrowhead Summerland County Festival, the seventh one, which I don't understand because they never bring it back again. <laughs> well, they haven't yet, Charles. They may bring it back, but I don't know. If oh, that's true. Um, but I remember when we were first recording this episode for for this episode, Charles, um, I spent so much time trying to figure out like who this band was. Like it must have been a real band, right? Um, like they probably hired a band to play for the crew as like a rap party and it's like they're shooting their last scene. If anyone has any clue, let us know, please. Uh, Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. But uh, yeah, it looks like a, a fun time. You got your caribou dog, your moose burger. I forget, Charles. I definitely asked you this, but would you go moose burger? Would you go caribou dog? Hmm. I guess now looking back at it, I would do caribou dog because i'm looking at the size of that patty and i know that as soon as i bite into it the patty's gonna like the, the like i'll still be holding on to the buns but the patty will slip out it's one of those situations <laughs> i would go so, moose, i would go moose burger so i mean that's that's cool ed, ed does the caribou dog so of course 
at the very, the very last moment, um, Ed asks Joel, you know, how, what do you think of the moose burger? He says, it's a bit gamey. And Ed says, well, don't worry, you'll get used to it. Something like that, uh, which is nice. A nice little send off. Uh, but yeah, Charles, talk about this sort of climactic scene with Holling and Maurice. I remember kind of gushing about it when we first recorded, but what do you think? Yeah, maybe I just missed it the first time, but this is actually a really well-written scene. Holling is talking about it with Maurice about how it felt to fall in love with Shelley, and he's relating it to being an astronaut and gravity, how he was saying, like, in space, there's no gravity. You just float. You're just there in the whims of space. But when you're back down on Earth, you have to obey these laws that just inevitably pull you in, just like love. And Holling couldn't stop to fall in love with Shelley. It was such a strong, powerful love at first sight, much like gravity. Yeah. And it is like, it's that thing that Northern Exposure will do again, like very poetic little pieces of dialogue. And I'll say like, it's, it's, a sh- it's a very compact, short scene. Like not a lot is said. So it is a little blunt, but it does have that sort of poetry in its language. It's got this imagery talking about gravity, this metaphor. And uh, I mean, dang, Barry Corbin, you know, Maurice Minifield gives a really great kind of like sobbing, crying performance. I, I think it's, I think that really sells it. The score in this scene is sort of like maybe like pads or something. It's not very uh, intrusive, but it's certainly there. And um, just the, uh, the composition is great because uh, I think you've got like a lot of smoke from the barbecue in the background. So there's like a shaft of smoke that shoots diagonally and uh, Holling and Maurice are sitting, Holling is left, Maurice is in the right. And for a brief moment, Shelly walks by in between them. And she actually like locks eyes with Maurice. Maurice is like facing away from camera, looking in the background, you know, and Shelly looks like dead Adam. And then she keeps walking. But beautiful shot because Shelly's beautiful. The smoke is like perfuming out. It's uh, a very emotional scene. Oh, yeah. Great detail on catching Shelly right there. And then the ending shot is also very beautiful to look at because instead of looking at them face on it's backwards we see their backs now we're looking at the beautiful mountain range we see the river and then we see the grass so really it's just trying to highlight in the background the magnificence of sicily and what they have to look forward to yeah lots of great beautiful nature shots featured in this pilot and uh you know they they really use that to their advantage i imagine they didn't have a crazy large budget for most of the show, but uh, just being in this natural wilderness, you can really get some really beautiful shots. One thing I did notice, I kind of want to check this real fast. The director of photography for this episode was not Frank Prinzi, who I think shot the entirety of the show, but I guess not this episode. Let me let me check some IMDb. The cinematography is by James Heyman, the director of photography. Thanks. Okay. And then let me look up Frank Prinzi because I, I know he shot a lot of uh, the show. And even uh, Harvest Moon was telling us that. Okay. So he definitely didn't shoot every episode. He did 44 episodes. So that's quite a lot. But um, I'm going to start looking out for that now to see like, you know, I always assumed it was the same cinematographer for, uh, well, maybe not every episode, but more than just these 44. So I'm a... Uh, Curious to see who's worked on this show. Okay, and that brings us to the end of the pilot. So 
Yeah, a lot of details that I missed out on. Like, I forgot about Rick and Elaine. Uh, <laughs> I forgot how the pilot even ended. You had that festival right there. Oh, yeah, you forgot. Oh, and, you know, we didn't even talk about Chris. You see Chris in this episode. Oh, yeah. Such a key part of the show. You know, like, they had that actor. Do you think they just liked him and were like, all right, we're going to write you into this show? Or do you think like he had some stuff that got cut out or what's going on there? I think it was just too many moving parts for a <laughs> yeah. pilot. Like you had to focus on Joel. Yeah. And yeah. then they could introduce like one small subplot. But then after that, they're like, oh, we can't do Chris. Like, <laughs> yeah. that, that'd be way too much. No, but I mean, like, do you think they cast him already knowing that he was going to be a big part of the show? They just didn't have room for him, I guess, in uh, the first episode? Yeah, I think so. Okay, yeah. I think so. He definitely seems like a featured. And like, who's his friend? He's got like, he puts his arm around a, uh, his buddy, you know? That guy seems interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> I think the, the actor looks sociable enough that he would just do that to an extra. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, we've kind of touched on throughout this episode, you know, like how the show has changed, you know, how different the pilot was. You know, we, we talked about how, how good of an episode this is. But um, yeah, I mean, is there anything, uh, is there any broad strokes we can touch on just about like how, because now we're in season four, I guess the broadest stroke is that uh, now the show is more of an ensemble cast. Whereas, you know, obviously the pilot, as you just said, you got to focus on Joel. You can't really branch out too much or it's you just won't have any through line to go with here. But yeah, any sort of like broad strokes, uh, things that you noticed here or feelings that you felt going back? Well, now that we're watching this after we recorded our episode with Gross Point. Yeah. Uh, what was it? 48230? 48230, I think. Yeah, I, I kind of mix up the two and the three, I think. so. I'll just say Gross Point. Yeah. yeah right there. I can kind of see the evolution of it, but I am surprised that he can do such a um, such an abstract episode with Gross Point. But with the pilot, it, it's more paint by the numbers. Like, if you had watched this, you would still think it's a standard sitcom. That There's nothing that deviates it from the norm, in my opinion, looking back at this. Yeah. But I'm impressed that as the show goes on and the more confidence they have in the writing and in the characters, they're able to deliver just such large moving pieces in an episode that just deviates from other shows of its time. Yeah, I, I definitely think by the end of the first season, throughout the second season and on, like... This was a show that people were tuning into just to be like, you know, always surprised at what they might find. You know, as you said, it's first episode may be very set in like a sitcom trapping. But uh, I think if you are a fan of the show, you can really expect anything when you turn it on. And that's fun. I think uh, I really do believe this show pushed a lot of boundaries, uh, did a lot of experimentation things that TV shows don't normally do. And those are some of my favorite things that happen in Northern Exposure. Well, Charles, it's been a lot of fun revisiting this episode, revisiting the idea of our podcast at its inception, you know, almost two years ago. And uh, I'm excited that we've got to go back to this episode now. But I can say, you know, I'm really excited for what we've got in store for some of our next bonus episodes I've kind of leaked it on Twitter and I've definitely posted it on Patreon that we've ordered the Northern Exposure cooking book. 
So I'm really excited to get in the kitchen and try out some of these recipes. I generally am like, at first when I heard about this book, I was just kind of like, oh yeah, this is just some weird fan service thing. But it does sound pretty interesting. I don't know if it's going to have good recipes, but I think it's going to be like some pretty good content, just like Northern Exposure related. Oh God, dibs on the easiest recipe. (laughs) I'm not the greatest cook. Like I hope there's one where it's just like, this is the Chris Stevens breakfast. Take out a bowl, put some cereal, pour some milk, and then like philosophize about your morning. That's that's it. That's the recipe. I was going to ask like, how how are you in the kitchen? But no, I'm sure it'll be a lot of fun. We'll, we'll, We'll cover a lot of ground simple and complex recipes. Man, I was just thinking about, since you mentioned Chris Stevens, the, uh, the Chris burger, is that what he calls it? It's like, it's like, what did he say? It's like six inches of beef with like raw in the middle and, uh, charcoal black on the outside basted in, uh, uh, like cooking sherry or something. I don't remember. An Everclear, I think. Oh God. (laughs) Hope that's a new cookbook. Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) It's got to be like a fire hazard. Okay. All right. Well, let's not spoil it. We're going to have a lot to talk about when we get there. Um, Charles, it's been great, and I'll see you next time. All right. I'll see you next time, Lee. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to you for being our supporter on Patreon. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And again, thank you for listening.